Welcome to episode number 23, where Jenna and I, Casey, will be talking about some of the resources available to survivors when the basic needs of housing is impacted by violence. This can happen because the violence took place in the home or the perpetrator knows where the victim lives, or even because of retaliation a victim might experience at the hands of their roommates. We'll talk about several different options available and we'll interview John Malsum, the Associate Director of University Housing, who will talk a little bit about what on-campus housing can do for survivors. Thanks, Casey. So let's first start with protection orders. It can be scary to realize that you might have to leave your home. Many people can create an effective safety plan which allows them to stay where they are. But what can happen after you decide to leave or have already left an unsafe situation? There are two routes, and today we're going to be talking about why they may be good options. There are two types of protective orders, commonly known as restraining orders in Colorado. The first is criminal, and the second is a civil order. Additionally, the university has another option called a no-contact order. I will take a moment to walk you through these options. To start, there is a criminal order of protection. This is put in place when there are criminal charges in a case involving two or more individuals. For example, with incidents of domestic violence, the state has a mandatory arrest law that states an order of protection will be issued regardless if the victim wants one or not. It is then up to the courts to decide how long the order will be in place. This law is intended to allow for a cooling off period. It can also give victim survivors the chance to have time away from the abusive person. For some, that might be just what is needed. For others, it can have a negative impact on an already difficult situation. We have worked with survivors who do not want a protection order because they are not planning on leaving their relationship. If that is the case for you, you can talk to the courts and request them to vacate the order. The other option is called a civil order of protection, which is initiated by the survivor at the county courthouse. A civil order of protection can be applied for in the county where the victim lives, the county where the perpetrator lives, or the county in which the violence took place. The forms for this are available online and there is a fee for application. That fee can be waived in cases of relationship violence and sexual assault. In most cases, a civil order of protection lasts the lifetime of the individuals. Both the criminal and the civil orders can be good options for survivors who are sharing a living environment with their abuser, such as a residence hall, apartment complex, or geographical area. They can also be good options for people who are experiencing stalking. These can allow you to stay in your living environment and remove the threat. Orders can also prohibit the abusive person from coming to your place of residence, work, or school. Orders of protection protect the person, and they can also protect locations when the person isn't there. There are many other reasons to explore an order of protection, but those are for another episode. And finally, let's talk a little about the university's no-contact order. This simply means that you cannot be contacted in person or electronically by the perpetrator. In some cases, the university can put more restrictive measures in place to protect you if you live on campus. This is all to say that there are options that involve staying in your living environment if that is something which is important to you. Even if you don't want a protection order, you can talk to an advocate about safety planning measures. You may find that there are many things you can do to keep yourself safe. But there are some times when staying in your place of residence is no longer a safe option. So let's explore some of the options that come up when it is time to think about leaving, even if it's just a temporary move. So many people are aware of the concept of a domestic violence shelter, but most aren't aware that there are different types of shelter. Some emergency shelters are at undisclosed locations, meaning that you will do an intake with a staff member of the agency offsite for intake. This is to protect individuals in the shelter from being tracked by people who are a threat. 
Other shelters are at a secure, disclosed location. This is the type of shelter we have in Fort Collins. Our local domestic violence shelter is called Crossroads Safe House, and they have a secured facility that is monitored 24 hours a day by surveillance cameras at all the entrances, and it even has a gated parking lot with a code to get in. There are other shelter options available in Larimer and Weld counties. We'll just talk about Crossroads. Outside of the physical structures, these shelters often offer more one-on-one advocacy, group support, sometimes legal support, and even transition assistance. They can be an excellent resource for people who are wanting to leave an abusive environment. Many offer the possibility for several weeks of housing, and some will offer the chance at transitional housing and help with budgeting. And when it comes to citizenship status, the Attorney General order requires that any services necessary for the protection of life and safety be provided without regard to immigration status. This requirement means that all shelter services should not be verifying immigration status as a condition for providing services. If a shelter denies services to someone based on their citizenship status, they may be in violation of civil rights and fair housing laws. However, shelters aren't always for everybody. They often have restrictive rules about conduct and allowable visitors. Many survivors of domestic violence have dependents, like children or adult parents. Even pets can become an issue. Almost universally, pets are not allowed in shelter, and often abusers will threaten pets at the time of leaving in order to manipulate you to stay. And it often works out because we love our pets deeply. The thought of them being hurt is unbearable. To help with this, some shelters, including Crossroads, will offer a foster service for pets for the duration of a stay. And when it comes to our human dependents, they are often allowed. However, you may want to check in with the shelter if you have a teenage son or an adult male under your care. Some will have rules about men in shelter, which brings me to the next rule that might cause a difference for survivors. Many shelters are gender-specific, meaning mostly women. Some are getting better about providing services for trans folk and men, like Crossroads, who has a limited space for genders other than women. Some will offer hotel vouchers for folks who can't stay in the shelter, but have an immediate need for shelter. Those vouchers can be hit or miss, and the hotels are often not as secure as a shelter would be. So that might cause a safety concern for some folks. For college students, the rules can provide some challenges based on lifestyles. For instance, for really good reasons, shelters have rules about using substances in the shelter or coming back intoxicated. For folks with addiction issues, this can be a big barrier for safety. Even for folks with an occasional use, these rules can be difficult. Living with relationship violence can put a huge strain on social supports, and often students want to be with their friends at times like these. And honestly, having a beer can help manage some of the stress. Even spending the night at a friend's house to come back sober to shelter can violate the rules. Because if you have other places to stay, then the visible need for shelter becomes less apparent. I don't say this to put down shelters. They are often at capacity and they have to make really hard decisions about who has the greatest need for the few beds they have available. But these are all considerations that you may want to take in when you're considering shelter as an option for you. I suggest talking to the shelter wherever you are about what their policies are, because in the end, if you need emergency shelter to maintain your safety and the safety of the people you love, these rules may not make a difference. 
Whether you decide shelter is a good place for you, you might still have the issue of a lease, but I have some good news for you. In June of 2017, Colorado made it a little easier for survivors to break their lease in the aftermath of trauma. House Bill 171035 passed, which added protections for survivors of sexual assault and stalking to an already existing bill for victims of domestic violence. If you need to get out of your lease because of imminent danger as a result of interpersonal violence, you need to inform your landlord in writing. This needs to include that you are a survivor of interpersonal violence and that you are seeking to vacate due to fear of imminent danger. You will also need some evidence of this violence. The word evidence can sound scary for people who don't feel that they have any, but it sounds like a stronger word than it actually is. Evidence could be a police report, an active protection order, or a letter from a medical professional or an application assistant for the ACP. We will talk more about the ACP in a moment, but what is helpful to know now is that all of the advocates at the WGAC are application assistants and can assist with this process. The letter we would write will talk about what you have relayed to us, how the trauma has impacted you, and why it is impacting your living environment. Two things to note about this process are, one, in your letter to your landlord, you need to inform them when you will vacate your place. You will still need to pay for 30 days past your vacate date. Your security deposit should work the way it normally does at the end of the lease. The second thing to know is that this legislation is enforced through all civil court processes. So if for some reason the landlord doesn't agree to let you out of the lease, it would be a civil court case to hold them accountable for their failure to follow the law. This is pretty rare. Once landlords are made aware of the law, they are usually pretty quick to comply with it. So whether or not you're using House Bill 171035 or simply relocating as per usual, you have some additional resources. Colorado has a program called the Address Confidentiality Program. This is the ACP program that we spoke about a moment ago. This program exists to help keep your address confidential. They provide you with a P.O. Box number in Denver. You would use this as your mailing address and the program will forward the mail to you. This program might apply to you if, one, you identify as a survivor of interpersonal violence who fears for your safety, and two, if you have evidence of victimization. This evidence is the same as we just talked about. And three, if you have relocated within the past 90 days or are planning to relocate within the state. You will need to meet all three of these criteria to apply for the program. The advocates at the WJC can help with the application. I know all of this information has been a lot, and it can be quite scary to think about having protection orders and confidential addresses. For many, these extremes are not necessary, but for those who need them, they can literally be life-saving. If you don't think you're there yet, let's learn a little bit more about the on-campus options for CSU students. For that, we're going to interview John Malsom, who is an expert in all things housing at CSU. Thank you, John, for joining us in the studio today. Thank you for applying pressure by regarding me as an expert. Um, we usually start our interviews on the podcast asking a little bit about your salient identities. It helps our listeners learn a little bit about who you are. So would you mind sharing some of yours with us? I guess fairly simply, my, my name is John. I've been the uh, assistant director of university housing for occupancy management for It'll be 10 years this February. Uh, I've worked in housing for a number of years before that and very much enjoy working in a college university environment. Great. So can you talk to us a little bit about the different types of housing options available to students? 
Uh, University Housing has a very comprehensive housing service in that we will provide housing to individual undergrads, individual grads, individuals in professional and PhD programs, students with spouse partner, students with family and dependents, and in a variety of different facilities. Residence halls primarily serving undergraduate individuals uh, to apartment areas that have uh, accommodated families large and small. Did I read that we have a gender neutral housing program? Can you talk a little bit about what that might look like for students? Sure. There's a couple of different ways in which this shows up in uh, in our processes and in our materials. In our materials, the, the information that a lot of folks will encounter would refer to our uh, all gender and open housing community uh, located in one of our residence halls. It offers uh, students the opportunity to live with a roommate of their choice on a floor community of other students who are coming together to live with the roommate and or suite mate of their choice regardless of gender identity expression and so forth. Uh, However, we want folks to know that that is not the limit of our services, that we work with students around housing options across all of our facilities. Uh, We don't want students to feel that they have to choose to live in the open housing all gender community or say a residential learning community or a particular building that they preference, that uh, students who come to us and indicate the gender identity they provide on their application is the information that we use going forward to place them based on all of the preferences that they may have given on their on their application materials and what our availability has to offer. So I'm sure that you're aware that there are times that things come up where students need to leave their room um, and go to another room for safety reasons. Can you talk a little bit about what they might expect if that comes up for them? Uh, first, what they can expect is to make contact with staff that if student ever feels like they're in a situation that their current assignment, be that a residence hall room, a university apartment, uh, is not safe, then reaching out to staff in their community will help get them connected with then the process of being offered what resources we have. Uh, We do maintain emergency spaces throughout our facilities that do get used for a number of reasons. That can be safety, can be a roommate conflict, could be a facility issue, could be something else, but they do provide an opportunity for us to give someone immediate uh, relocation opportunities. Uh, It is a limited resource, but from what I've seen over the years, We've been successful in keeping students in housing and in a space that allows them to get into a different location, uh, at least temporarily, until something longer term comes along, which then that is the next set of questions that we would need to ask, potentially in consultation with other campus resources like the Women and Gender Advocacy Center, case management, maybe others, to help determine what the ongoing needs of a student may be and what a long-term relocation may need to look like, or if a need to separate from housing is part of the planning, what that would need to look like. So you talked a little bit about what a student would do if they have some safety concerns and need to move around still within housing. But we have sometimes we have students who, for a variety of reasons, university housing is no longer an option for them. So what happens if a student, for safety reasons, needs to break their contract with housing so that they can move off campus, so they can attend to their safety in some other ways? What would that process look like for students? I think that's a place where we are fortunate as part of the overall division of student affairs 
partners and university community to have resources with whom we can collaborate, who can speak on behalf of students and provide us guidance and information around what the needs of an individual may be. Uh, I think if you review our policies, you're going to see what our standard processes are with regard to cancellation fees, lease breakage fees, and charges of that nature. Uh, but if exceptions need to be made, there are processes in place for us to be given documentation, consultation, again, looking at those campus resources to provide us the kind of uh, acknowledgement that the student needs in that situation to say, this circumstance is exceptional and we need to make a full release waiver of charges and give that student the opportunity to find an alternative that is hopefully going to be workable for them. So then we sometimes will have the converse of what we just talked about, where students may be choosing to live off campus, but for a variety of circumstances might then in the middle of the year need to move on campus, either in an emergency situation or just whatever's happening off campus is no longer working with them. And so they're wanting some more security maybe in the on-campus system. So what would that look like if a student needs to apply outside of the normal cycle? As long as we have space to give, students can apply for and seek on-campus housing. There may be some limitations as far as availability, variety, locations or room types or apartment types, but as I said, if we have a space available that will be a reasonable fit for the individual and or their family's needs, they contact our office. We'll walk them through the application process. That's going to look a little different depending on the time of year and the type of housing they're seeking. For example, during the academic semester, if someone is seeking residence hall assignment, they would need to come into our office to complete that. If that's not possible, I'm sure we could work out some other mechanism to get that to happen. But under just the regular process that would be visiting our office, whereas during the academic semester, applying for the apartments is online all the time. And that would also maybe be a place where some of those campus partners and folks could help us identify what might be an applicant coming in whose needs may be more urgent than other folks who may be applying uh, at any time, particularly for our apartment areas, because that application never closes. People apply for the apartments all year long, every semester, summer breaks, you know, as long as they have a need and we have space, they could be moving in at any point during the year. So I would encourage that if there is an, an urgency that may be present, it may be helpful to seek out either directly to our office or through other campus resources to help give us some notice that this is a situation that needs to be given some additional consideration. Is there anything else that you want our listeners to know about university housing or anything that you'd like to convey to them? Our staff want to help. Our staff do this work and they take on the jobs as undergraduate students, as graduate students, as full-time professionals to, to work in an environment uh, that certainly meets basic needs, housing, dining, meal plan, food service, but does more and goes beyond that. Whether that's being a resource to help with referrals and connecting to campus services, to be a, a trusted person that they can turn to with questions and concerns, to be a space that they can feel comfortable and safe living, uh, that we're, we're not just property managers, we're not just landlords, we're not just here to put bodies in beds. It's, it's more than that. And if that's not the environment you're looking for, that's okay too. We're there either way. Awesome. Thanks so much for coming in today. That was really helpful information.
So that is all we have for you on this episode of We Believe You, Advocacy, Resources, and Healing Around Interpersonal Trauma. Please remember that the WGAC is here to provide support for all CSU students 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. To reach an advocate, you can call 970-492-4242. If you have feedback, thoughts, comments, questions, or want to be interviewed for the podcast, please email the WGAC at colostate.edu. That's WGAC at CO. L-O-S-T-A-T-E dot E-D-U. For more information about advocacy and the Women and Gender Advocacy Center, please go to www.wgac.colostate.edu. You can also find the WGAC on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. A big thank you to Xavier Hadley for creating the music used in this podcast and to our partnership with KCSU here at Colorado State University. For more KCSU content, go to kcsufm.com. Thank you so much for listening.